It's not easy to make a huge impression on Formula 1 when your debut lasts only a couple of corners, but Michael Schumacher managed just that in 1991 when he turned up at the Belgian Grand Prix to drive for Jordan. Two weeks later he'd switched green overalls for yellow, having been poached by Benetton who he would go on to win two world championships with. Today on Bring Back V10s we'll explain exactly how Schumacher slipped through Jordan's fingers over the course of less than a fortnight. Before we get into that detail, remember to get your questions in to ask us anything about F1 from 1989 to 2005 for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. And if you'd like to show your support for the show, why not join the likes of Ronster84 and Stuart of the Jets in leaving us a five-star review and submitting a question there too. But let's crack on with Michael Schumacher's arrival in F1 for now. And joining me for this one are Ed Straw, and the man who designed Schumacher's first F1 car, Gary Anderson. So Gary, your status as the designer of the Jordan 191 certainly trumps anything Ed can bring to the table here. So you can have the first swing at our opening question, which quite simply is when you think of Michael Schumacher's arrival in Formula One, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, really, he was very competent. Um, we did a, <coughs> a few laps of Silverstone South Circuit before we went to Spa in the car and you know he, he he got in the car it was it was where he should have been he as i say he was very competent um we actually brought him in after about three laps or something to tell him to take it a little bit easier um and he sort of said well i am but you know into the chicane at the pits at silverstone south where the you know you could park the truck and stuff he was um he was definitely in control of the car uh, and the car was well and truly out of shape on on every occasion so he was yeah, he was ready to push it to the limit all the time, so confidence was very, very high. And I think that's what sort of made me aware that this guy is, is actually is going to go places because he, he just does have that inner confidence. That was a theme, I think, th through the research we were doing, actually, that uh, whether it was when he turned up at the Belgian Grand Prix with you guys or when he gets his first test with Benetton, very similar impressions. And I think Benetton even told him to maybe calm down as well. Uh, Ed, you haven't designed any F1 cars raced by Michael Schumacher, but Rory Byrne wasn't available, so you'll have to do as our second guest. What stands out for you about this story? I should say in my defence, I've designed less non-winning F1 cars than Gary has, so if you look at it that way, I'm doing okay. But yeah, Spa 91 and Schumacher, it was just the extraordinary impact made by the arrival of an extraordinary driver. It's oversimplifying it to say he came from nowhere because he didn't, but that's what it seemed to most of those watching, and that's why I think it sticks in the memory. You don't need that benefit of hindsight for this to mean something. It was a big deal at the time, and regardless of the circumstances of how he got the seat and what happened after that we're going to get into, it was that qualifying performance and what happened in just a few seconds of racing that really mattered. It was the start of a legend. We couldn't know quite how big a legend, but what a splash he made. So let's get going with the man without whom none of this would have taken place. And his name is Eric Court. If you're wondering who he is, he's the taxi driver that got into an altercation with Bertrand Gachot in London in December 1990, which resulted in Gachot spraying him with CS gas, sometimes also known as tear gas. In August 1991, Gachot received an 18-month prison sentence for the incident and possession of a prohibited weapon, as CS gas was illegal in the UK. He said at the time of the court case that he was using it for one reason, and that was to defend myself. Gachot had been on his way to a sponsor event where he was meant to be appearing with Eddie Jordan when he had the accident, and it was only afterwards that Eddie found out why his driver never turned up. But interestingly, in Eddie's book, he writes, The stupid thing was that we could have sorted things out had we known about the extent of the problem. Bertrand was not the sort of guy to go around attacking people, far from it, but rather than trying to make amends, Apologising to the taxi driver and making a donation to charity, Bertrand dismissed the incident from his mind and failed to realise the possible repercussions. So Gary, you're obviously embedded inside Jordan in, in the team's first F1 season at this point. When did you guys find out about this incident and did Gasho sort of play it down at the time? Well, I think everybody played it down. I don't think anybody really realised how serious it was or where it was going to go to, to be honest. It was... Um, you know, even Eddie's lawyers, whenever they took it up, they were saying it's yeah, it's only a matter of you know going there and we'll pay a bit of a fine or whatever, get wrapped knuckles. But you know, it wasn't going to be like that. So we never really, as a as a team, we didn't really know enough about it. 
Um, we didn't really take it seriously. I mean, Eddie may have done because obviously Eddie, Eddie was a bit more involved than me. You know, I, I was working on the car basically, but it was one of those sort of situations where, um, yeah, as I say, awareness might have made, made us think differently, but that wasn't to be. And uh, you know, Bertram, we went to the Hungarian Grand Prix, which was uh, just before the case came up, basically. And you know, he 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 was doing his job. He was driving. He was focused. You know, he, a lot of people you would expect to fall apart a little bit if they were just going to be going to court and thought it was serious. So I don't think even Bertram thought it was actually going to go anywhere like it did. Bertram uh, went to the Hungarian Grand Prix, where he set fastest lap. And finished ninth, uh, and that was the only fastest lap of his F1 career. He wasn't expecting anything serious to happen, as Gary explained there, and even made plans to head to a test at Monza straight after the court appearance. Uh, Eddie Jordan calls the sentence preposterous, and he said that everyone was confident an appeal would be successful, but Gasho lost the appeal as well. Uh, but he did get the sentence reduced to nine months, which still left Jordan scrambling to find a replacement for Gasho at his home Grand Prix in Belgium, which was the next race. Even the taxi drivers reported to call the sentence a tragedy, although supposedly in the British press he also said, there comes a time when you have to grow up and realise that you can't go around spraying people with CS gas, which is an incredible quote, and I'd love to know if that's real. Ed, I think that sums up, though, what an utterly bizarre story this was. Did you have any sympathy for Gasho over the severity of the sentence? Yeah, certainly some sympathy. Looking into it, the detail a bit a bit more now, from what I understand, the custodial sentence, it was specifically a use of CS gas, which was really considered a weapon. I know that's kind of stating the obvious, but it, it really elevated the the nature of the, the offence. Looking at the details, there's no doubt that the taxi driver was being confrontational at best. So he did initiate something. You know, Gesho acted in self-defence, and it, it was using the CS gas as a weapon that led to this harsh sentence. Um, I don't know enough about UK law, but I know there was great sensitivity as well about the use of this sort of thing at, at that time. I think there was some relationship with football hooliganism and that kind of thing that that meant it was one of those um, one of those times when there's certain forms of crime that become particularly unpopular, so that they get they get tough on them. So in that regard, I think it it, it was decided that it wasn't a proportionate response from Gasho to the level of aggression that was shown towards him. I don't think it was quite the grand miscarriage of justice that it was portrayed as because it was well within the way the UK law went and, and some precedents, etc., from what I understand anyway. But I understand why Gasho did what he did. As Eddie Jordan said uh, himself, had it all been taken a little bit more seriously initially, perhaps it could have been made to go away before it ever got that far. But then just the momentum built and it happened. I mean, I'm no legal expert. I'm sure there might. There's probably a listener with specific skills in that area who can get in touch with me, who has familiarity with with the case, who can correct me. So I edge drive on on Twitter. But yeah, some sympathy, but it didn't come from nowhere, and he probably was a little bit injudicious. Although, you know, we weren't part of that, so who knows? So Jordan's hunt for a new driver begins, and Stefan Johansson was top of Eddie's list, but he was ruled out because he wanted paying for the drive. Other names in the running were reported to be Derek Warwick and bizarrely Keki Rosberg. Uh, I say bizarrely because this was five years after Keki had retired from F1. Gary, would you have liked to get any of those drivers into your car for the Spa weekend? Um, they weren't really that high on my list. No, I never really heard about uh, Keki Rosberg getting the offer of the drive, but uh, Damon Hill was in there with potential as well. He was driving for um, the team, 3000 team, basically, that Eddie was slightly involved with at the time. And, um, you know, so his name was mentioned as well. But as a, again, it was it was one of those sort of things... You know, there was a, a test at, at uh, Monza and uh, Bertram was going to be coming to that test. So we never really knew about it until the last minute, until he wasn't going to appear at that test and had to make some decisions. I'm I'm always and always have been um, a lover of the younger driver coming in, somebody somebody that's not seen it all, done it all and, and know it all, knows it all. They're coming into a new team because we didn't, we hadn't seen it all, done it all or knew it all. But what we did was try. Uh, and that was the main objective. And we wanted a driver in the car that would, or I wanted a driver in the car that would just go out there and sort of drive the wheels off it. And we'd try and do the best job we could in a given weekend. And I don't think you could do that with a hardened professional that was probably on his way to his retirement fund, as opposed to a young guy that, you know, was on the way up and would just, as I say, drive the wheels off it. Now, Michael Schumacher was sort of on Eddie's radar by this point. Uh, in 1990, Eddie had seen him race in F3 when he was in Germany 
for talks about selling his F3000 team to Willy Weber, who was looking after Schumacher's career. And Eddie says in his book, the first time I watched Michael Schumacher race, I was not particularly impressed. Michael's performance that day in 1990 had not caused the raising of the eyebrows in the same way that Ayrton Senna had done when I first saw him race. Having come across good drivers in the past, I instantly realised there was something special about Senna. I did not have that feeling with Schumacher. He was what you might call a normal driver. Very good, but not exceptional. However, Eddie does admit that he wasn't there specifically to look at Schumacher. He could just sniff a good deal to get rid of his F3000 team. Although in the end, the deal with Weber didn't happen. And when Weber placed Schumacher in sports cars, even though it was with the Sauber Mercedes team, Eddie says he was amazed. He wrote, Sports car racing was a dead end, a place for either retired F1 drivers or just those who were never good enough to make the cut in the first place. I couldn't understand why Weber had done that, and I suppose subconsciously it endorsed my feeling that Michael was good, but nothing special. Ed, how would you characterise Schumacher's pre-F1 years? Do you think Eddie's maybe doing him a disservice there? Yeah, I think I think partly. There wasn't necessarily the evidence to suggest that Schumacher would become quite what he was, but he did have a very fine junior record. One German F3, won the Macau Grand Prix, one race in Formula Ford machinery, the, the Formula Koenig Championship in Germany. So he's clearly very good. He didn't have quite that same level of buzz as someone like Mika Hakkinen did, who was kind of his natural rival. And we are seeing this through the, the prism of, of British coverage, both from experiencing at the time and looking back. But Hakkinen, who had made his name racing in Britain in British Formula 3 and and other categories, he was kind of the guy that had the real buzz behind him. And he did turn up at the end of Schumacher's German F3 title winning campaign and blitz everyone uh, on an appearance. So, yeah, no surprise really. And Hakkinen, of course, was already in F1 by that time, while, as you say, Schumacher was off on this sports car tangent. But I also think perhaps the Schumacher skill set didn't stand out in the same way in junior categories because there was so much more to Michael Schumacher than just being a fast racing driver. He was that, but all these other factors, the assuredness, the confidence, the attention to detail, the ability to drive the team, the nothing on the table, ruthlessness, all of those things added up to make him. And, and maybe the junior categories that are a little bit to say one-dimensional is exaggerating it, but they're slightly more straightforward, perhaps meant that that didn't showcase him in the same way. So he was he was seen as a, as a very, very good prospect, but I don't think that many people were running around calling him a future seven-times world champion, if indeed anyone would be absurd enough to suggest that of, of anyone. Schumacher did remain on Jordan's radar, though, because he was repeatedly being hassled about him by Mercedes commercial manager Gerd Kramer, who Eddie believes pushed harder for Schumacher than Weber did. Eddie appeared on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson, and that's a brilliant episode that I'd recommend you listen to. And in that, he said he was bored of hearing about Schumacher from Kramer, and he said to him, go away, tell me what his budget is, and I'll think about it. But please don't keep telling me how good he is, tell me how much he's got. And Eddie said that's because Jordan's finances were brutal by this point of its first season. The week before the Belgian Grand Prix, the World Sports Car Championship was in action at the Nürburgring, where Schumacher was driving for Mercedes. And this Nürburgring weekend was where everything would come together. And unsurprisingly, for something that happened nearly 30 years ago, there are lots of different accounts of how it all happened. Eddie recalls today that Schumacher remained in the back of his mind and he felt he was worth a look, so he did a deal over the phone with Weber for £150,000 per race. Weber claims that he was the one to make the call after a journalist at the Nürburgring told him Gasho had been sent to prison and he says he spent over £500 that weekend on international phone calls trying to track Eddie down because Eddie was on holiday with his family in Spain. However, in the coverage at the time, it was reported uh, that Eddie said the deal was done in person at the Nürburgring. So nobody can quite make their minds up. But Gary, how aware were you a week before Spa of what was going on? And what was your reaction when you heard that this guy, Michael Schumacher, was going to be in your car? Well, um, my, my recall is a bit different from all of those, really, to be honest, as you'd expect. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. It's, I was at Monza testing with Andrea. We were expecting Bertram to come down. Andrea did, I think it was a Wednesday and Thursday. And we were expecting Bertram to come down on the Thursday night to test on the Friday. Or maybe, maybe I'm a day out there. I'm not quite sure. But anyway. Um, and the phone rang. And it was Eddie, and he said, uh, oh, Burton's got locked up. Um, we need to find somebody else for the, uh, for the race weekend spa. And I said, well, who, what are you thinking about? And he said about um, 
the, you know, we talked about Damon Hill, we talked about um, Stefan Johansson, um, and that was about it, really. And I said, I said to Eddie on the phone, I said, look, there was, you know, I watched a race, a Mackay race, a Formula 3 race, um, uh, with a guy called Michael Schumacher, and he looked pretty handy to me. Do, do you know anything about him? And Eddie said, well, yeah, I've heard, I've heard of him. Um, and that was really it. That was it. You know, that was the conversation finished. He said, I'll, I'll get back to you. So we continued testing the next day with, uh, with Andrea, um, because we hadn't got a second driver at that point in time. And it was uh, late in the afternoon when I got a phone call from Eddie to say, yeah, we, I've made contact with him and he's going to be coming to the workshop next week. So I don't know where it happened, at, how it happened, um, but it's a bit different from both of those accounts. But it sort of, I think it happened on the Friday, Thursday that afternoon or Friday afternoon, I'm not quite sure. Um, and Michael was going to come to the factory the next, uh, on the Monday after the race at the Nuremberg ring and uh, do it, finish it, finalise the deal and, and get a seat made and whatever. I think we can forgive everyone uh, some some sketchy memories about an incident like that, but the ultimate outcome is the same. Phone calls took place. He ended up in the car. We'll stick with this Nürburgring sports car weekend for another moment because Schumacher got himself into hot water during qualifying for deliberately driving into Derek Warwick's Jaguar. Warwick was trying to stay out of Schumacher's way uh, as he wound up for a qualifying lap of his own, but Schumacher didn't think he did a good enough job so he drove into him. A report in Autosport magazine from the Times says Warwick stormed to the Mercedes garage after the car's return to the pits, by which point Schumacher had fled to the Mercedes truck, but Warwick was having none of that, barges in, and then what is described as an angry confrontation takes place, which if you're on the receiving end of an angry confrontation with Derek Warwick sounds pretty terrifying to me. Schumacher admits to doing it on purpose, but refuses to apologise and eventually the next day he's forced to say he's sorry. But Warwick persuaded his TWR team not to protest Schumacher, assuming that FISA, the authorities, would take strong action anyway. But Schumacher escapes with a reprimand for misbehaviour and dangerous practice. Warwick says he should have been fined and banned, and says Schumacher was lucky that Jaguar team boss Tom Walkinshaw wasn't there, although of course Walkinshaw will crop up again much later in this story. Ed, I don't know if you've heard that story before, but would you say that's perhaps petulance from a young Schumacher or an early glimpse at his tendency to take matters into his own hands on track? Yeah, you have to look at it within the wider context of Schumacher, don't you? I mean, it certainly showed he wasn't going to show any deference to the established names and was going out of his way to make his mark. But driving into someone in those circumstances was clearly going a, a bit too far. So it does perhaps encapsulate Schumacher's supreme confidence and self-belief and the fact that he was in the right, which usually was a huge positive for him and occasionally perhaps caught him out. And sometimes in these sort of high-stress, high-pressure situations, he maybe took decisions that he might regret later in the in the cold light of day. And we have to remember, you know, this incident wasn't completely isolated. He had the crash with Hakkinen at Macau in 1990. He piled into Johnny Chicotto in a DTM outing. Obviously, Chicotto was driving for BMW. He was a, a title rival of Mercedes that... that Michael Schumacher was on a on a on effectively a guest outing for so that trait was kind of in there I think you actually have to quite admire that strength because it helped him far more than it hindered him but yeah being irritated in a qualifying session and doing that isn't a particularly wise move should we say so I think it, it tells you something about Schumacher but you know still young up and comer making his name so you'd rather see a driver with a little bit of fight and a bit of that than who doesn't give a damn I'm sure Gary's run into plenty of those. Gary, did you know about that incident and would it have made any difference to you knowing that he's coming into your car and he's been in trouble for driving into someone on purpose? Well, I didn't know anything about it, no, and it wouldn't have made any difference. Again, I'm, I'm on Ed's side there. You know, there's, there's too many gentlemen out there um, and they, they, they don't succeed. You know, it's the ruthless guys that get through, to be honest, at the end of the day. Uh, you need a bit of fight. I'm sure it wasn't all just quite so one-sided as maybe Derek Warwick makes it out. You know, I'm sure there was a little bit of argy-bargy going on between them for a while. Um, so it's never, you know, you need to hear the whole story or see the whole story before you can actually really make judgment on it. But I wouldn't have condoned him for, for uh, being a bit aggressive on the track. No, I think you need to be that way. Before Schumacher turns up at Jordan after that event for his seat fitting and the quick test that Gary referred to at the start, he does stop off in the UK for an already scheduled meeting with Jackie Oliver of Arrows. Arrows had been interested in Schumacher for a while, and while he attends the meeting out of courtesy, 
Of course, nothing ever comes from it. But we do have to stop off here for a moment because those of you who listened to our France 1990 episode will recall a sensational period in that summer where Arrows approached Nigel Mansell and Adrian Newey for 1991. We joked then about how Mansell driving a Newey-designed Porsche-powered Arrows might have gone, so let's take it one step further. Ed, let's assume Arrows did get Mansell and Newey for 91 uh, and that they've stuck around for 92. We'd in fact then ended up with Mansell Schumacher as a super team driving Newey-designed cars for Arrows or footwork or whatever you want to call them. How do you think that would have looked? Well, to take the question literally, I think it would have looked uh, just as red and white as the cars were, but a lot more Williams FW14 shaped, I I would imagine. The ingredients are tantalising, aren't they? Obviously, as you say, they've had to get through 91, and they started with a Porsche engine there, which was enormous, overweight and underpowered, much like myself, really. But while the probability of everyone (laughs) agreeing to join was low, if it had happened and somehow come together and Schumacher had come in, then maybe the ingredients are there. There's probably a few too many weak points for it ever to have, have held together. But it, it does make you think a bit about, we often think that everything that happens is almost preordained, not in some deliberate design way, but you kind of think, well, of course, all these people got together and it led them on this path here. That's kind of logic. But it, it's not because luck and circumstances and that kind of thing plays a part. There's so many different paths anything could have taken. You know, who knows? Maybe we didn't get the the best version of uh, of what happened in the, in the early 90s. And somewhere in a parallel universe, there's a podcast being recorded now in which everyone's talking about the ingredients for the rise to dominance of Arrows and laughing at the idea of Newey and Mansell at Williams in 92 and talking about Gary Anderson as the savory of Ferrari. You know, <laughs> all of these things happen, but it, there's so much random chance involved but it's 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 really fun to fun to think what might have happened had they all got together there and it's amazing how many times people could have gone to arrows based on all the research we're doing i definitely want to find that parallel universe podcast as well maybe we can uh maybe we can hook up and have a crossover with wherever that one's being recorded let's get to spa in his uh, f1 podcast interview eddie joked that he wasn't sure he could spell schumacher's name before he signed him And maybe this was true because on a Thursday before the Belgian Grand Prix, he has a sweepstake with the British press about how his new driver will perform. And he says to them, where do you think Schneider will qualify? Bernd Schneider wasn't racing anywhere that weekend, so I don't think he did very well. I doubt any of those journalists would have guessed correctly, though. Schumacher was 11th in Friday morning practice, 8th in first qualifying on Friday afternoon, 5th on Saturday morning in a session where both Jordans spent most of the time at the top of the order before some qualifying simulations happened from some other drivers. And of course, if you know this story well, you'll know that Schumacher started his debut from 7th on the grid. But after Saturday afternoon's second qualifying session, he was actually 8th in the order and he was bumped up a place when Ricardo Petrese's Williams failed scrutineering for not having a working reverse gear. Schumacher complained about traffic during the session Uh, which is understandable because back then we had 30 cars trying to get the 26 slots on the grid. Uh, And he was upset with none other than Alain Prost for getting in his way. But he still qualifies seven tenths ahead of teammate Andrea de Cesaris, who is 11th after complaining of handling problems during the weekend up to that point. Schumacher's performances were well and truly turning heads and he was uh, earning praise from some of the most respected voices in the media. Dennis Jenkinson in Motorsport magazine said... Schumacher's uninhibited performance was one of the highlights of the two days of practice and qualifying. Here was a man making the car do what he wanted when he wanted it, not having to see what the car wanted to do. And the Autosport Nigel Roebuck wrote, It may seem ridiculous already to speak of him as a special talent, but just once in a while you get a feeling about a new driver, an impression that this is the start of a major career. It was there with Villeneuve. I think he means Gilles, but he could mean Jacques. Uh, with Prost and with Senna. And I, together with nearly everyone else at Spa, felt it there with Schumacher. So Gary, did you feel it by the end of qualifying? How impressed were you after the first two days of running at Spa? Um, Yeah, very impressed, obviously. I mean, the the important thing for me was that when he said he would be able to do something, he he was. He went out and done it. You know, like El Rouge, that point, that time uh, with Formula One cars. It was difficult, but flat. Um, and on the Friday, he hadn't taken it flat. Um, we said to him, you know, Friday night, you know, 
you got, is it going to be able to be done flat with the car the way it is? And he said, yeah, yeah, no problem. So just you know, get my confidence in the car. Um, Andrea said the same thing. And it took, Michael went out first, first lap Saturday morning flat through a rouge. And Andrea took him to the last lap of qualifying before he went flat through a rouge. He, he did go flat through there. But, you know, Michael just seemed to, he seemed to know, he could tell himself what he needed to do. And then he would go and do it. It wasn't like, you know, it was, it was a blur to him. It was actually confidence, but it was also calculated confidence. You know, I think, I think what Ed said earlier is a bit, a bit tr true of quite a few drivers come through the formulas and you never quite see them excel in a formula until they hit the one that they're really good at. And, you know, that is ultimately Formula One. But that just means that that driver has more bits of the jigsaw able to put it together that makes the driver up for that that typical formula if it's sports cars it's fine you know you need to look after lots of different things in sports cars from what you need to do, look after in formula one so they're very very different disciplines but michael just seemed to have all the as i say all the bits of the jigsaw that made up a formula one driver and from day one he was using all those bits you know his, his alertness his mind his commitment his uh, you know just his ability to sort of be able to read the car from day one was was quite incredible. So yeah, I you know on Saturday night you sit back there and say this this thing is something pretty special. Of course, Schumacher's race famously lasts a matter of seconds because he burns his clutch out at the start. So by the time the field streaks up the hill from Radion to Lecoum, he's already pulled off at the side of the circuit. But Ed, after what Schumacher had done during practice and qualifying. Did it really matter that he didn't get to put on a show during the race as well? In real terms, no. The ball had been resoundingly set rolling. He'd been noticed. He'd proved what he can do. He'd made that a massive impact, like like Roebuck, that quote you mentioned with people like Villeneuve, just making that impact when they turn up and people seeing what they've done. And it doesn't matter if they score points or doesn't matter if they finish the race or whatever. It's all, it's all about that, making that impact. And actually... Gary had a bit of a stake in Villeneuve's debut in 77, but that's another story we'll uh, maybe tell on another podcast another another day. But yeah, there is a slightly more fanciful sense that even though Schumacher did make that impact with a race that lasted probably about 30 seconds by the time uh, he, he'd ground to a halt, it is quite fun to think what might have happened had he not had that clutch failure. Because as I understand it, Gary, there was no preordained reason for that failure to happen. It was down to the circumstances at the start, wasn't it? So he, he could well have completed that first lap and carried on. Yeah, it was. Uh, there was a lot of circumstances really um, leading up to it. I suppose you might call it. Basically, the, the engine we had at that point in time, the, the Cosworth HB engine, had a bit of a, a crankshaft problem, and we had to run what was a single plate carbon clutch on the on the back of the engine. Obviously, because if you ran the double plate one, which was the the robust piece of kit at that point in time, um, it was a bit too heavy, and the crank suffered because of it. Um, so we were committed to a single plate clutch. And that's all okay in itself. But we also, there's a, an aluminium hub that basically drives the carbon fibre plate. Um, and it's got a spline inside it that goes onto what's called the clutch shaft, or it's the shaft that comes out of the gearbox. Then it's got this aluminium hub, and there's a spline on it that drives the carbon plate, and the carbon plate's connected to the engine. So the, the drive is all going through that aluminium hub. The AP Racing, the people who make the clutches, brought out a new one that was made of titanium because heat was a problem in that aluminium, and the, the aluminium would just basically get too hot and distort. Um, we couldn't really afford the titanium ones, so we actually got a, a batch of ones that Williams had sent back because uh, they didn't. They got the titanium ones. They could afford them, we couldn't. So they gave us brand new aluminium ones free of charge as such. And we, you know, we lived in 91, beg, borrowing, stealing, or whatever you like to call it. Um, it, it was a year like that. So we got these new aluminium hubs uh, for a spa. And it was really, I suppose, then from there on in, it was a bit of naivety. Um, we didn't really realise how much extra load the uphill start at spa would put into the clutch. And you had to do a bit more slipping of the clutch. So, you know, this all compounded. And basically, Michael got to turn one um, and there was a big blockage and he'd gone up a few places and basically he did another start. He, he you know, went around turn one with the, uh, with the clutch disengaged and then did more or less another start going out of turn one. And just that killed it. The aluminium hub, the single plate clutch, the uphill start, two starts at the same time. You know, all just mounted up to the clutch itself went, don't want to know anymore, and uh, just melted the aluminium hub. That's it. End, end of story. 
Jordan still had plenty to focus on in the race, though, because Gary's 191 had looked good throughout practice in race trim. And in the Sunday warm-up, Schumacher and De Cesaris were fourth and fifth quickest. De Cesaris climbed from 11th to 8th at the start, of course, aided by Schumacher's retirement. And he moves up another place when Prost's Ferrari blows up early on. Once the pit stops have cycled through, he's up to sixth. Ahead of him at this point are Mansell, the non-stopping Alacy, Senna, Piquet and Patrese. Then Mansell retires from the lead and the Jordan is up to fifth. Key moment in the race is when Senna tries to pass Alacy for the lead on lap 27, but he struggles to find a gear on the run out of La Source. He crawls up the hill thinking his race is over until he eventually finds third, fourth, fifth and sixth gears are working. From then on, he decides not to try first or second gear again, and he's lost 10 seconds to Alacy in the space of a lap. Without the use of the lower gears for the hairpin, Senna can't make inroads on Alacy, but then just three laps later, the Ferrari's engine fails. By this point, De Cesaris is up to second, and he's only 2.5 seconds behind Senna, but he can't make inroads on the ailing McLaren. Now, Gary, why don't you take up the story from here? Because Andrea had problems of his own, and at what point in the race did they start to materialise? Well, it's, it's you know one of those sort of situations. There's always some reason behind it. Again, on the on the engine, the Cosworth HB, um, they had some new pistons um, for that event, and basically the the engine was using more oil. We didn't know that. We normally had we had an oil tank, which you you know you put an extra oil for the race, basically. Spa being what it was with El Rouge, it was quite difficult there to get the oil pickup uh, system to work correctly. Um, because you got the big compression and then the extension as you went over the top of the hill. So very difficult to keep oil at the pickup of the oil tank. And um, we we didn't know that the engine was using more oil. So basically we just put in the normal extra, I think it was like two litres of oil at that point in time, to use up during the race. But the engine used a bit more. So suddenly we were starting to get oil pressure dips um, coming out of El Rouge. So that's never a good sign. And... Um, we sort of knew it would be a matter of time, to be honest. But what do you do? You know, you just have to keep the hammer down. Um, I would have been pretty happy to have finished two and a half seconds behind Ayrton Senna and McLaren, but, uh, you know, it wasn't to be. But it, we never found out, really, about the reason for the uh, the engine failure until we got to Monza, which was, you know, then we have to start to put more oil in the tank, to be honest, to, to see the race out. But obviously that race, that one race at, at Spa, where we had a, a very good car, and some other people had some problems was our opportunity and you know that was gone basically very very quickly yeah de Cesaris disappears from the race on lap 42 out of 44 uh, when he was 3.4 seconds behind Senna at the start of that lap so it's heartbreak for Jordan which could have got a podium in its first season I think Eddie mentions in his book Gary that you um, you told him the engine normally used about a litre of oil during a race and that uh, you needed 5.5 litres, or you used 5.5 litres in that race. Eddie also says that he felt De Cesaris was eased down the media agenda after Schumacher's qualifying performance, and Eddie doesn't believe enough people associate that race with how the other car got on, and he adds that to this day he doesn't like to think too much about if Jordan could have won that race. Ed, I know this is a favourite race of yours and a favourite performance uh, from De Cesaris. Do you think that this race gets forgotten uh, with what I guess we could call the second Jordan that weekend because of what Schumacher did and because of all the uh, interests surrounding his debut. Yeah, it certainly has suffered from that, which is understandable in many ways because of the size of the splash that, that Schumacher made. In recent years, you do just start to see it referenced a little bit more often, though, which is which is nice. And, you know, to Cesaris, we know at his best he was a very good driver. He was clearly on it that afternoon. He had a good season then. Had he won, which was certainly absolutely possible, it would have been a, an absolutely remarkable story. And we should add, actually, that had Schumacher kept going, you know, you can't kind of invent a race out of thin air, but he was ahead of De Cesaris at the point he retired. So who knows where Michael Schumacher might have been, how much better this story could have been. But yeah, it would have been a wonderful way to cap the amazing story of Jordan in 91 because what that team achieved was astonishing. We've talked before on podcasts in this series about the, the struggling teams and all these teams that turned up with kind of chances and stepped up from lower categories and failed. And what Jordan did then was unbelievable, really. And I think to have to have got a podium, to have got the second would have been nice, but to have won, given what that team achieved, it would have been a fantastic thing to have just as the kind of crowning glory. And we should say, you know, what Gary did with that car was 
was particularly astonishing, given that that team didn't really exist when uh, when he first turned up to uh, to start work there. He had to basically not only design the car, but you know all the facilities from scratch as well, uh, along with Andrew Green and and Mark Smith. So. Yeah, it would have been brilliant for Jordan, wouldn't it? And great for De Cesaris, who never won a race and, and did a fine job for them uh, for them that year. So, yeah, we should talk about De Cesaris almost winning more often. And I'm pleased we've done so. And if you want to hear more stories about the early years of Jordan, some of those stories there that Ed hinted about, about uh, the job Gary faced uh, when he joined the team. Um, stories like that always come up on Gary's own podcast. So search for the Gary Anderson F1 show and check that out. It's released every Wednesday. And Ed and Gary get together and they discuss a lot of questions from listeners as well. So that's, that's a good fun podcast. And you can ask Gary about anything to do with modern day F1, the future of F1, and of course, the glory days of Jordan uh, and Stuart as well. Stuart went quite well. But anyway, back to 1991. After the race weekend, Schumacher is expected to stay with Jordan, at least in the short term. According to reports, he does drive the car again in a test at Silverstone, where he is reported to do Jordan's fastest time of the year on the South Circuit of 54.4 seconds. So, Gary, firstly, I didn't recall that he did another test after Spa. So if when he turned up, and I believe it was damper and brake testing was the purpose of the test, when he turns up for that, was everyone in the team, including yourself, assuming that he's going to be there for at least the rest of the season? Well, you know, at Spa, we, we did assume that was what was going to happen. Um, so we were planning ahead, basically, to try to, uh, you know, to work together for the rest of the season. Then, you know, there's a few things that, that, that sort of pop up in my mind that I sort of question. Um, he ended up seventh on the grid. Nelson Piquet in the, in the Benetton was sixth on the grid. And that was Michael's biggest upset, I think, whenever, you, whenever I look back at it. He did get held up on his... Um, on his best lap in qualifying uh, into the bus stop by Alan Prost. Um, memory, memory told me it was uh, uh, Jean Alessi, but I, you know, I'll go with the, whatever the, the trend is. Uh, but he got held up into the bus stop by, by someone. And that lap, if he sort of equate what he did through the bus stop on his best lap, he would actually have been third in the grid. So you know, it was a massive, a massive improvement on what he really did do, but it didn't happen. But he was very upset about it, mainly because Nelson Piquet was ahead of him. So I think some of this stuff was going on in the background all the time. You know, the, 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 the attempt to try to get with Benetton or be with Benetton uh, was, was simmering in there somewhere. It didn't just all start after, after uh, Spa. Also, you know, we talked about it at the weekend, about the Yamaha engines for next year, and we were trying to put a good, a good light onto that. Um, and I remember him having a comment after one of the practice sessions that he had gone through El Rouge behind... Um, this Brabham Yamaha and he said if that's the engine you have for next year you're going to have problems <laughs> so you know those things I add up two and two and sometimes come out with five but I'm sure there was a, definitely a five in there somewhere if you added them up correctly so you know we, we continued on as if the season was going to go on because we didn't know anything different and to be honest we were in Monza before it even really reared its ugly head you know it wasn't as though it happened in the next week It was a, there was a two week gap I think it was between uh, between Spa and Monza, so it was, you know, it had time to rear its head, but we, we were still continuing as if we were going to, uh, going to go on with it. So, yeah, we had to put our eggs in the basket and, and allow them to get on with the work that might have made us, you know, better all the way. So, uh, yes, it's, it's one of those sort of situations, I think, where, you know, we, we were very naive as a team, and maybe he saw that as well because he had been working with Mercedes. You know, he had been working with a very big and professional team. And I think he maybe come into to Jordan and saw that we were pretty much a very small team, relatively. So maybe he got, he got a little bit of fright from that as well. And, you know, all these things add up. You mentioned the Yamaha engines there. And uh, in fact, after Spa, uh, Eddie Jordan flies to Japan to finalise that deal, which was set up by Bernie Eccleston, who knew Jordan was in financial trouble and needed a, a, a financially friendly, should we say, engine deal for 92. On the Friday after Spa, Ian Phillips at Jordan gets a call from Vili Weber, who says uh, Jochen Nierpasch from Mercedes would turn up the following Monday to sign a contract with Jordan on Schumacher's behalf. But Weber warned Phillips to watch Nierpasch. Jordan waits all day for Nierpasch to arrive on the Monday, and when he finally turns up, Late in the afternoon, he's accompanied by the famous driver manager of names like Senna and Prost, Julian Jacobi from IMG. 
and the initial letter of intent that had been agreed between Schumacher and Jordan had now been changed, and Eddie Jordan said uh, the new letter was totally unacceptable. Eddie says Schumacher's camp wanted all manner of things for the £3 million they'd be paying for the drive, including sponsorship rights for the entire car. Jordan said it would need to be worked on overnight, but he also heard whispers at this point that Schumacher had been to Benetton for a seat fitting. Sure enough, the next morning, so on the Tuesday at 10am, Jordan receives a one-line fax from Schumacher saying, Dear Eddie, I'm very sorry, but I'm not going to be driving for your team. Gary, how did you find out about this and what was your reaction when it all started to unravel? Well, we, we found out, as I say, I was, it was Monza really before we really got uh, any idea what was going on. Um, obviously, initially, there was a bit of fighting about this, this fax to say I'm not going to be driving for you because, again, Eddie was trying very hard, I think, to do the deal with Schumacher directly. And then suddenly, you know, Neas Passion and, and Mercedes were, were coming in the middle of it all. So it was getting more and more confusing. And again, because we were quite small, um, you know, Eddie's always done wheeling and dealing. And you could wheel and deal with Michael Schumacher, but you couldn't wheel and deal with the Michael Mercedes. So um, we, again, uh, we weren't involved in that side of it. As a technical side, we just had to get the cars ready for the next race and get there and, and get on with it. So everything became a bit of a surprise when it got to, when we actually got to Monza. Yeah, and you, you're still waiting to find out who's going to be driving your car. So what really happened here? Well, over the weekend before that Monday meeting at Jordan, Nearpash had contacted Tom Walkinshaw at Benetton to see if they'd be interested in Schumacher for 1992. Walkinshaw said he thought Schumacher was committed to Jordan, but if that wasn't the case, he'd be interested. The initial idea was for Schumacher to test the Benetton and for talks to progress from there. Then on the Monday night, Nearpash called Walkinshaw to say that they had failed to reach terms with Jordan and would Benetton be interested in taking Schumacher immediately? The initial paperwork was drawn up on that Tuesday morning and uh, in Walkinshaw's words, it was subject to the confirmation that Schumacher was free. Walkinshaw spoke to Eddie Jordan on the Tuesday afternoon and he described Eddie as a bit excited, but he told Eddie to do whatever he had to do in terms of legal action as Walkinshaw was of the belief that a big corporation like Mercedes wouldn't tell him Schumacher was contractually available if that wasn't true. Schumacher tested the Benetton on the Wednesday uh, across the road from the Jordan factory at Silverstone. The team were happy and the contract was signed. When we got to Monza and it all kicked off, Walkinshaw said there was a lot of nonsense flying around. He added, The fact is that Schumacher, for whatever reason, had no contract with Jordan. He was a free agent. How anyone can allow a talent like that to be walking around the paddock, I don't know. That's their business. Uh, when we were informed of that, we went about the proper way of securing him. Ed, there's lots to go over here. and We'll come on to why Schumacher was contractually available in a moment. But if Benetton were initially contacted about signing him for 1992, is it possible there was an element of fortune here that Walkinshaw suddenly realised Schumacher might not be tied down in the immediate term as well? Well, luck can play a role in these sorts of things, but... It wasn't by chance that Walkinshaw was contacted by Nearpash, was it? And I can't imagine that there wasn't some sort of hint of what might be possible. Far from me to suggest anything untoward was going on. But I think, as Gary has suggested, there was sort of something going on from quite quite early in, in this whole thing. I mean, that's what's so interesting about this. There's so many moving parts in, in the move. Individuals with vested interests in seeing it happen. And probably Michael Schumacher, although... By all accounts, he was he was happy to keep going with Jordan. I'm sure a driver of his, amb his ambitiousness would have seen what Benetton could offer him. And indeed, we saw where he got to with Benetton in, in a few years' time. I think probably Jordan were just hopelessly outgunned. They were a new team. You know, Eddie Jordan's shrewd, but he was still on a very steep learning curve with the old Piranha Club at this stage. So, yeah, so many forces wanted it to happen. And those forces, when they've got more money than you as well, it means you're going to lose, aren't you? And yeah, I guess it was almost inevitable that 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 they'd be they'd be sunk on on this thing. Too many people wanted it to happen, and so it did happen. Yeah, we'll discuss a few more of those forces in a moment. So some of them were very powerful. So why didn't Jordan have Schumacher tied down? It appears to come down to one word in a letter of intent. This was reported by Motorsport News in the UK back in 2005 when it uncovered the key letter. The letter was dated August 22nd, 1991, which I believe was the Thursday before Spa. The original version of the letter said, Dear Eddie, 
I confirm that if you enter me in the 1991 Belgian Grand Prix, I will sign the driver agreement with you prior to Monza in respect of my services in 1991, 1992, 1993, and subject to Mercedes' first option, 1994. The driver agreement will be substantially in the form of the agreement produced by you with only mutually agreed amendments. I understand that PP Sauber Limited will pay you £150,000 per race for 1991. I also understand you require $3.5 million for both 1992 and 1993, and if I or my backers are unable to find this money, you will be entitled to retain my services in those years. Yours sincerely, Michael Schumacher. But there were key changes made to this letter, and uh, the line, I will sign the driver agreement, was changed to, I will sign a driver agreement. And the line about it being substantially the original agreement with only mutually agreed changes was crossed out entirely. Speaking to Motorsport News about this in 2005, Weber said that without the change of the contract to a contract, Schumacher would have had to stay at Jordan. However, in the revised form, it meant Schumacher could sign any agreement he liked with Jordan. And the example Weber gave was that he could agree to visit the factory twice a year and that would count as a contract. Jordan said he learned a lot about contracts from this incident as the change made was clearly deliberate on Schumacher's side and he was gutted to lose the driver. But Gary, how was he at the time? Once you get to Monza and this is all falling apart, was Eddie a fit of fury and rage or was he just crestfallen and almost devastated? Well, I think, yeah, crestfallen and devastated. You know, it, it was one of those sort of things. Everything was done in good faith. And I think that was, we talked about the Piranha Club there a minute or two ago. I think that was just the realism that, that really did exist. Um, you know, I, I don't blame Tom Wilkinshaw for, for trying to take Schumacher. Um, I don't blame Schumacher for going there. I mean, whenever you look at the race result, PK finished third in Spa and Moreno was fourth. Um, Moreno got the fastest lap of the race. So they had, you know, they had a competitive car. They had two finishes, one on the podium, one not quite. Um, and we had two DNFs. So, you know, if you were an up-and-coming would-be seven-times world champion that probably Michael Schumacher was at that point in time, what way would you go? Or what way would you try to go? And, uh, you know, those are quite big numbers as well, £150,000 a race for 1991, £3.5 million for the, uh, for the two preceding years. At that point in time, those were quite big big numbers. And, you know, that's... It's, it's what you... You know, it's what we were expecting. It's what we needed. But obviously, they could do a different deal altogether with the Benetton relationship. So suddenly it became a non-pay drive to be in a paid drive uh, with a team that was doing a very good job. So, you know, Eddie, Eddie, it was naive to expect that it might happen for us, but at the end of the day, Eddie still tried to work with the fact that, you know, you, you should be able to have a gentleman's agreement and do some stuff. Um, but it didn't work out with, this, with that lot, no. Jordan took out various attempts at legal action to block the move happening, but because he didn't have a valid contract with Schumacher, those attempts all got thrown out. But one man who did have some legal power in all this was Gary's buddy Roberto Moreno. After Spa, where as Gary said there, he'd set the fastest lap, Benetton had told Moreno he wouldn't be retained for 1992. And yet a week later, they were binning him off immediately. And Flavio Briatore has said recently that Moreno was not good enough to race in F1 which is perhaps a tad harsh. So with some advice from Jordan, Moreno managed to get an injunction in Italy against Benetton on the eve of the Monza event. Bernie Eccleston, who Eddie Jordan believes was one of the main players in this and was keen to get Schumacher into a more competitive car to boost F1's profile in Germany, got everyone together at a flash hotel in Italy to, in Eddie's words, bang some heads together. Moreno has been offered half a million dollars to drop the injunction, but Jordan was advising him to hold out for a million. Briatore admitted in an appearance on the F1 podcast that Moreno's contract was the first one he put together in F1, and he said, It was not a good contract. I put a lot of mistakes, and I remember the lawyer of the team told me I needed to redo the contract because it wasn't clear between a chassis and a car. Flavio went on to explain that um, what happened with Moreno was that his contract only promised him a chassis but Benetton reserved the right not to give him essentials such as an engine and wheels, which would make it legally a car. So once that dawned on Moreno, supposedly that's why he gave in, accepting the half a million dollars 
which was the remaining value of, of his contract and what Flavio called a bonus to go away. So, Ed, what do you reckon? Eddie Jordan wanted Moreno to hang on for a million dollars. Do you think Roberto should have held his nerve? Well, it's easy to say he should have done if that sort of money was available, but I imagine the fact that he could see that Benetton would stop at nothing to make it very hard for him to drive that car and the fact there was an actual half a million on the table that he could pick up and then immediately reinvest into his career meant it was a quite simple and straightforward move. And I think in Roberto's interest, it probably did make sense for him to take it. Perhaps it would have helped out uh, helped out Jordan if, if Schumacher was blocked from racing at Benetton, certainly. But, but for Roberto, no, I think the amount that he was offered would have been very carefully calculated. He knew he was out of Benetton for the following year anyway. There weren't that many races left. So sometimes you've got to be pragmatic and know where you're beat, when you're beaten. If you've got something out of the deal, then you're, you're probably ahead. So, yeah, a shame for him, but probably pragmatic to, to accept it. And the treatment of Moreno went down very badly with the other drivers, particularly the Brazilians. Uh, Nelson Piquet gave Briatore a piece of his mind, saying Schumacher had done nothing to deserve the drive. And according to Briatore, Piquet then refused to drive for Benetton because he claimed he'd never seen a team operate like this. So Briatore called his bluff. He gets the team to prepare Alex Zanardi for a seat fit, and Zanardi is told to walk past the Benetton motorhome in full overalls. When PK sees that and asks what's going on, Briatore tells him Zanardi is replacing him because PK has refused to drive, and at that point, PK backs down. Ed, what do you make of this? Is that a genius move from Briatore or a bit harsh on Zanardi, who, of course, at this point was an aspiring driver trying to get his brake in F1? Yeah, a bit of both, probably. Uh, it left poor old Alex Zanardi in no doubt as to the role he was playing as a pawn in the whole in the whole thing. And you know, he genuinely thought he had a chance of racing at Monza that weekend, which would have been his Grand Prix debut, home race, competitive point-scoring car, perhaps even a podium car. So, you know, this was a serious opportunity. And he's he's talked about it in the past, I think, on the probably on the Beyond the Grid podcast from F1. They did a great interview with him where he talks about that. But he became just a prop in this whole fiasco it was not really a fiasco that was going on but it was a bit of an unseemly uh negotiation shall we say i do suspect it probably played a part in Sonardi deciding to to leave benetton because he, he walked away from a test role to race for lotus uh down the line because he probably didn't believe that that Briatore necessarily had his had his best interests at heart so maybe it played a part in that i, I don't know but yeah you shouldn't really be using your uh your test driver to do that but I completely understand why Briatore thought it was a great idea to show that he was serious and of course we should say PK was old friends with Moreno from from way back uh, in Brazil so there was a real connection there and Roberto Moreno is a popular and likable character so you can see why PK wanted to try and fight for him but it didn't stretch to shooting himself in the foot for it. Yeah I do feel a bit sorry for Zanardi because I think there was also a misunderstanding where maybe Jordan thought he was under contract and they couldn't get him. He'd also had to get permission from Marlborough to potentially race a camel-sponsored car, and all of that proved to be uh, for nothing. But to show how seriously this was being taken by the drivers, this was a rare issue where PK and Ayrton Senna were fighting on the same side. Briatore says it was the only time he ever fell out with Senna, and Senna spoke at length about the saga over the Monza weekend. He said, What happened was not correct, and I thought somebody had to say something. It's always the people in the top teams, Alan, Alacy, the two Williams drivers, Gerhard, Nelson and me who are written about the most. So I feel that unless one of us speaks about it, something like this just goes by and people get away with it. From the outside, I can say I don't think it's a good thing to change drivers in the middle of the season like this because it starts a precedent which allows me or anyone to say, OK, I drive for you if someone turns up with a better car or offering better conditions you can imagine the mess there might be. Moreno, of course, does end up driving for Jordan that weekend. Uh, and part of, I think, Eddie's motivation to get him to hold out for as much money as possible was so he could then take a chunk of that from Roberto immediately in exchange for a drive. But Gary, Roberto was in your car that weekend. You guys were, were good friends by this point. Did he appreciate the support he was getting from the other drivers in the paddock? Yes, I think he did. Um, you know, mainly obviously the Brazilian contingent. But it was a difficult situation for Roberto because he, uh, Nelson Piquet was Roberto's hero. And basically that being in the same team, actually, that hurt him quite a bit because Nelson, you know, would stitch him up as often as possible on just setups on the setup changes on the car and whatever. And Roberto wasn't sort of, I don't know what you call it, um, committed enough to sort of call him out on it. 
So it was one of those sort of situations where actually, you know, with Benetton, whenever Briatore says that Roberto wasn't good enough for Formula One, I think that's absolute rubbish. He got he got definitely treated as a second driver and because PK was his big hero. But if you imagine, you know, Roberto Moreno was up all night on the night before practice in Monza, getting all this thing sorted out. I mean, I think he went to bed about four o'clock in the morning. So we got go to first practice, his seventh fastest, Andrea's um, ninth fastest in the second car. Michael Schumacher happens to be sixth fastest in the in the Benetton, so they're side by side as far as speed's concerned. Practice two, Roberto is eighth fastest, Andrea eleventh, Michael Schumacher's fifth. Um, qualifying one, Roberto's eighth fastest. Qualifying two, um, is ninth fastest. So, in a car he'd never driven, other than in, in what you might call anger at a race meeting, you know, and being up all night the night before, with all, you know, these mental problems basically going on about this, get, losing his drive and losing everything, he did a very, very competent job up up to the race. And the, and the race problem was one of our problems as well with the brakes overheating. But never mind that, you know, Roberto was an excellent driver, deserved to be in Formula 1 for sure, and deserved a team to have confidence in him to, to go forward. And that never really happened. So... I I don't believe what Briatore said was 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 right at all, and I think what they put Roberto through was was really the wrong thing to do. So I do agree with the Senna's and those the top guys um, making a stand to try and make sure these things didn't happen to their fellow drivers. So why did Schumacher's camp go so cold on Jordan so quickly? We've already hinted at it, and the answer really is is two words: Yamaha engines. Jordan believes that part of Bernie's scheme to get Schumacher into a better car as quickly as possible was to make Schumacher's management aware of the Yamaha engine deal that, of course, Bernie knew about because he had set it up. Yamaha just scored its first point in F1 at Spa with Brabham, but the engine was clearly going to be a step backwards from the Cosworth Jordan used in 91. As Gary referenced earlier, Schumacher had clocked that out on track. And speaking to Motorsport News in 2005, Willy Weber confirmed that when they found out Jordan would have Yamaha engines for 92, this was not what we really expected. Uh, That's what prompted the sudden change of contract wording, which Weber said saved our lives because it got Schumacher out of being lumbered with that Yamaha engine for his first full season of F1. During the Monza weekend, Nirpash was keen to point out that all Schumacher had in place with Jordan was an agreement to talk about an agreement. Gary, regular listeners of your podcast have heard stories about how bad the Yamaha was. Given what Jordan went through in 92, can you understand why that would scare Michael off? Yeah, I can. Um, You know, I never saw what the the car was like on the track as such. And, you know, a driver can tell a lot of things about a car on the track. It's at that point in time, it's, you know, it's, it's just basically an engine. So when he was driving around Spa and there was a Yamaha engine car near him, he was the first one to say to me in the evening, you know, are you sure about that? Because that doesn't seem the right thing to be doing to me. But it was, Jordan Grand Prix wouldn't have existed. You know, it, it needed to do something. So we, we took a punt at the Yamaha, hoping that it would, it would move on. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't. It actually moved backwards. So the engine, the first engine we tested, we built a chassis specifically for the longer engine, a 191 car basically with a Yamaha engine in it, and Alex Zanardi drove it at um, at Silverstone. And immediately it was impressive. We just, like, you can't believe it was so good. This engine came straight from Suzuka, from the, the, Brabham, the Brabham Yamaha sort of pack of engines, I suppose you might call it. And as I say, we shoehorned it into the car. Alex drove the car, was very impressed. You know, we were very impressed. The lap time was very good. Uh, the unfortunate thing was it blew up after eight laps. So we thought, oh, well, that's okay. You know, just the way it is, really. It's been on, you know, side in a... This is actually Yamaha told us this has been side in a crate coming from uh, Japan and one thing or so on. And we put another one engine in it. And as Alex said, it was like the light's gone out. This second engine that we put in was just a completely different dimension. It wouldn't even have been a good Formula 3000 engine. And that was really the problem we had all year long, was the randomness of what you got was unbelievable. Um, If you got a good one, you tried to save it. Normally it would blow up. If you got a bad one, it would go forever. But, you know, we we just couldn't make a plan with anything. So it was was a very difficult year, and it would probably have destroyed Michael Schumacher's career. And as we also mentioned earlier, Benetton had another key advantage over Jordan uh, because it was willing to pay Schumacher rather than ask him to bring budget. And Briatore said on the F1 podcast, 
I said to Weber, I pay you. I don't want the money from the sponsor. Just don't send the money to Eddie. Eddie was shouting, I have a contract, but there was no contract. We never took him from Jordan because he didn't have a contract with Jordan. He just did one race there. Interestingly, uh, Eddie says that when it was all kicking off in the hotel in Italy, Bernie Eccleston was orchestrating the whole thing and he describes Briatore as a puppet because he was new to F1 at the time and did not have a clue. Flavio counters that slightly, saying that while Bernie was pushing for the switch, certainly, Benetton was already on the lookout for a young driver because it knew it couldn't afford Senna or Prost, and Schumacher had been recommended by Walkinshaw, who of course had seen what Michael was capable of as a rival in sports cars. Ed, do you think it's unfair on Briatore and Benetton to suggest this was all Bernie's doing? After all, you know, Flavio took the recommendation from Walkinshaw and was willing to pay for this driver. So he couldn't have just been a puppet just doing whatever Bernie said, surely. Yeah, Benetton are active participants in all of this, weren't they? It certainly suited the team to get him in the car. So we can't portray them as, as passive players in, in the whole drama. Race winning team, realistic aspirations of going for titles in the future. One of the bigger beasts in the F1 paddock by this stage. So they knew what they were doing. And Briatore, he's one of those people who sometimes can look like he doesn't know what he's doing. But he does. And although this was relatively early in his relationship with Bernie Eccleston, there's a reason why he got on very well with Bernie and there were plenty of enterprises between the two of various forms over the years. So, yeah, I'm absolutely certain he he was part of it. And, you know, we talked about it before, Piranha Club, Piranha Club rules, isn't it? Yeah, and I think to be fair to to Flavio and to be fair to Eddie's representation, he, he said that Flavio may have been clueless in the beginning, but he learned the ropes very quickly. And Eddie actually thought that There were other team bosses in F1 who didn't like the fact that someone who knew so little about racing and perhaps engineering could do such a good job running an F1 team. So he's eventually complimentary towards Flavio. That's pretty much where we'll end the story. But not long after this, Schumacher was involved in another contract tug of war when he was still getting used to life as a Benetton driver. In February of 1992, Sauber announces it's entering Formula One the following year with some Mercedes support. And Peter Sauber says its drivers will be Carl Wendlinger and Schumacher, who he believes he has under contract. Schumacher battled against this, refusing to make the move on the grounds that any contractual option was only held by Mercedes and not Sauber. Benetton released a very firm statement calling Sauber's announcement irresponsible and saying Schumacher can only leave Benetton before the end of his contract on receipt of written notification from Mercedes that they intend to enter Mercedes cars in the championship the following year. Peter Sauber says, I'm not quite sure the Benetton people have full knowledge of our contract. We have signed a deal with him which allows us to use him as a driver if we enter F1, with or without Mercedes. It is a contract with Sauber, not with Sauber Mercedes or Sauber Ilmore. And in James Allen's book about Schumacher called The Edge of Greatness, former Mercedes motorsport boss Norbert Haug said the contract was valid but Schumacher didn't want to come and you can't make a driver drive your car. Norbert felt that Schumacher knew he was with a race-winning team by this point and didn't want to take a step backwards with Sauber. So Ed, here you go. You love a bit of Sauber and now you've got a chance to talk about them. Norbert does point out that the 93 Sauber was a pretty good car. What do you think Schumacher could have done if he'd ended up racing it? I'm always delighted to talk about Sauber. I think he could have done some impressive things in that car. It was a very neat and tidy and usable car. Not actually dissimilar to the Jordan 191 in that respect, of kind of a sensible get-on-the-grid car and cause a few surprises. Some good people contributed to that car as well, including Harvey Postlethwaite, Mike Gascoigne. Uh, brand new team, finished its first lap in Grand Prix racing, running fourth and fifth at Army, which is pretty impressive. And you'd have you to love s- that stat. Oh, it's one of my favourites. But you'd have to say Schumacher would surely have done something special with that. Okay, he wasn't going to be running around winning races, but... I presume he would have done, he would have got a little bit more out of it. Although Venlinger, if you look at him, particularly early in the season, he's right up there having collisions with Michael Andretti in the uh, in some of the early races, right up near the sharp end. So, yeah, I'm sure he'd have had some, had some good moments uh, in that car, but no doubt whatsoever that he was better off going down the Benetton route. And Gary, you can have the last word here, because as we mentioned earlier, if Schumacher's deal with Jordan had gone through, it would have been for multiple years. So if we ignore the difficulties of 1992... Do you ever look back and wish that you'd been able to hang on to Michael and had him in your 93 or 94 cars? I think, you know, having him in the 94 car, that was a good little car. I think that would have been the time we would have been ready for to take on that uh, that challenge. I'd just like to go back a little bit there into the Sauber days and make Ed happy. 
Um, you know, I, Jochen Maas was a very good friend of mine. I, I worked with Jochen at McLaren uh, in the 70s. And uh, as far as they had the junior Mercedes team and they had the, the senior Mercedes team, which Jochen was part of, and he would still to this day say that Carl Wendlinger was the man as far as the three juniors were concerned, Heinz Hall Frensen, Michael Schumacher and Carl Wendlinger, that Carl Wendlinger was the guy that would be, you know, get the right brakes and he would be the one that would take it, take it through to Formula One. Um, obviously, we never saw that really at the end of the day, but he, did, he had some good results. But it's a, you know, it's just a fact that a driver working with him knew that. But yeah, going back again to the to the Jordan days, I mean, the '94 car, as I say, was a good little car. We we struggled for survival in '92 and '93. So at the end of the day, that wouldn't have been good years for Michael Schumacher with his talent to have been there. So I think what we had was with with Rubens coming through was the best solution for '93, and then in '94. You know, he was he was new at it, but he got his time to sort of cut his teeth as such. And uh, the '94 car was pretty good, and he, he made good use of it. Yeah, that's a good hat tip, I think, to Carl Wendlinger, who, who you know, his career was never the same following that accident in Monaco. But of course, uh, Schumacher wasn't in a Jordan or a Sauber by 1994 when he won the first of those seven World Championships. So how different history could have looked. That's it for another episode of Bring Back V10s, where hopefully we've shed some fresh light on a famous story. Don't forget to get your questions into us about anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005 for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or leave us a five-star review and a question there if you'd like to support the show. We're skipping forward a decade with next week's episode where we look at the year Toyota spent on the sidelines before it entered F1 when it managed to upset its future rivals on more than one occasion despite not even racing against them in 2001. You're not going to want to miss that one, and I can tell you that we will be joined by a very special guest to help give us some nuggets and inside stories of Toyota's preparation to join the grid for 2002.